Thank you very much for coming along. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I just have to reflect that one of the joys of working uh, in, uh, at university is working with uh, some of the best people in the world, the young people who are there because they care and they want to learn more about the universe and their place in it. Bringing, uh, bringing us to me, my place in this world. Uh, I was born in New Zealand. Uh, my background is in physics and mathematics. So I came to the University of Auckland. Like I said, I did all of my degrees at the University of Auckland, and it's all in physics. Uh, I started off wanting to study laser physics, and uh, that changed also um, during the course of my degree because I discovered I was more interested in planets, stars, and galaxies than I was with uh, lasers, cool as they are. My specialism is in discovering planets, discovering worlds other than those going around our own sun. So just as a quick survey, how many planets do we know of out there in the galaxy other than our own? Shout some numbers out. Hundreds? Hundreds? Billions. Billions? 69. 69. <laughs> OK, very good. None. None. OK, so we've got a range. <laughs> over quite a few orders of magnitude, from zero to billions? The answer is, there is going to be billions. How many we've got evidence for? Thousands. Well over 4,000 planets we know of to exist in our galaxy. Now, when I started university, we knew of nine planets. As of 2006, that went down to eight planets. <laughs> so things weren't going well. However, by that time, we had already started to discover extrasolar planets. In uh, the mid-90s, we had the first evidence of a planet going on around a very weird object, not a normal star like our own sun, but a very uh, odd thing, like a, a hot star corpse, if you like, called a pulsar. But it just had to be a very convenient way of discovering planets going around that object, and that was the first discovery of a planet going around something other than our own sun. Jumping forward a couple of years after that, there was the first discovery of a planet going around a real star like a, uh, as our own sun. So that was the start of the discovery of planets in the mid-90s. Now we found ourselves finding hundreds of planets every single year. Some of those are getting awfully close to what we think would be necessary to have life living on it, life like us. And if there's time, we'll be talking a little bit more about what it is to have a planet which is suitable to have life on it. This talk is not going to be a lecture. This talk is going to be me talking about the principal ways we've been discovering planets. And then I'm going to throw it over to Q&A, to questions. You all came here expecting for five minutes of questions. You're going to get a whole lot more. This is a topic on which everybody has got their reckons as to whether life is out there, intelligent life. Some people have reckons about whether there's intelligent life here. We're not going to discuss that. We're just going to take that for granted mm, to first order, at least. So I am going to talk. First of all, about the ways that we have been discovering extrasolar planets, and it is very well, straightforward in most cases. Let's start off with a technique that was first used, first successful in discovering an extrasolar planet. Can somebody please give me an example of an angry driver driving past you while you're standing on the side of the road, and that angry driver is blowing his horn, if you'll excuse the phrase, at something or someone? Can somebody give me an example of what that sounds like to you, standing on the, on the footpath? Let's, let's step it back. This is a particularly recalcitrant crowd uh, of, of first-year physics students. I am in my car. I am stationary. No, Mahima is in her car. She is stationary. She's not moving. She puts her hand on the horn. What do I hear? 
fantastic, well done, excellent. Mahima is now driving past me, I'm standing on the footpath, and she's holding her hand on the horn, what do I hear? There it is, fantastic. Okay. Could be the sound of the engine, could be the sound of the car horn. It starts up high and it drops down low. That's more of an engine, isn't it? But you get the idea. So the planet doesn't have a horn on it. But the thing that's going around kind of does. So this is a star. It's sending out light. It's sending out light at all sorts of wavelengths. What happens when you put light through a prism? It's what Newton did. Turns into a spectrum rainbow. Great. It splits the light up into a bunch of different wavelengths. And one of the features of uh, that process, called refraction, is that you can see what the gas of the, of the star is made up of. You see it as a series of dark lines. Some of the light has been subtracted out of that spectrum. It's kind of like a fingerprint of what the star is made of. But those dark lines appear at very specific wavelengths, at very specific colors. Very, very sharp. The thing is, this star, if it's got a friendly planet going around it, it's going around the star in accordance with predictions from gravity. So, star's got mass. Mass produces gravity. Gravity causes things to move towards it, like a planet. And a planet moves around in a circular or otherwise orbit, always being pulled towards the star. Yes? This planet, small as it might be, is still pulling the star backwards and forwards ever so slightly. Let's subtract the planet from it. From your point of view, the star is going around its common center of mass. Okay? So sometimes, at some point, you on Earth are seeing the light from the star as the star is moving towards you, and some points when the star is moving away from you. Towards, away, towards, away. The movement of the star caused by its planet is shifting the light, the wavelength of light from the star, both to higher frequencies as it's moving towards you and lower frequencies as it's moving away from you. By this means, we can see, you remember those very dark lines, that fingerprint of light coming from the star? We can see those lines shifting towards higher frequencies. <coughs> And we can see that periodically, backwards and forwards. We don't ever see the planet, but we see its gravitational effect on its host star. This is a technique called radial velocity. Velocity, speed, radial, towards or away from you. This was the first technique used to discover extrasolar planets, and it's still being used. This is a massive, massive object. The sun is something like two with 30 zeros behind it. Kilograms. It's a big, heavy object. It isn't moving an awful much, backwards and forwards. However, we have gotten kind of good at this technique. We can measure the speed of a star hundreds of light years away, moving backwards and forwards about the speed that I can run, which isn't fast. A few meters per second, but we can measure that with the instrumentation that we've developed over the years. That's technique number one, radial velocity. Next technique, the transit technique. This is even easier. You have a star, you have a planet, you are the observers on Earth, you've got a telescope looking at a bunch of stars, this is a planet which, during its orbit, passes between you and the star, blocking out some of the light. Straightforward, yes? You look at the light, 
At some point, if you stare at the star long enough, night after night after night, same stars, night after night after night, some of that light may be blocked by a planet going between it and your eye or telescope. This is called the transit technique. This is the technique that the Kepler Space Telescope used to discover thousands of planets. Those are the two techniques that have been used uh, to discover most of the planets to date. There's one more. It's called direct imaging. Take a photograph of it. Pretty straightforward. Get a big telescope, look towards the star, and you say, well, surely you should be able to see the light reflected off the planet to your telescope. Problem with that is, well, if you ever try to see something faint next to something bright, what do you do? Squints is one thing. Yes, excellent. What else? Somebody shouted at infrared. That's a good idea. It's not quite, but not what I'm reaching for, but yes. You block it out. So we do that. We do that through a couple of ways. One is you get very, very naughty with the nature of light itself. You make it cancel itself out. Wave stuff, quantum stuff, not going to go there. By doing that, you're able to detect, you're able basically to cancel out or block the light coming from this really bright thing to capture the tiny amount of light being reflected off the planet to your eye or telescope. Direct imaging. It's quite hard because even with all these fancy optical tricks, this is still really bright and this is still really faint. But we're getting closer and closer to finding planets more like those we see in our own solar system. Right now we're finding, with that technique, particularly large planets. And in fact, that's common for all the techniques I've discussed so far. The radial velocity technique, the transit technique, and uh, the direct imaging technique. It's easier to find a planet, big planet, shaking the star backwards and forwards with a lot of gravity for the radial velocity technique. It's easier to see a big planet blocking out a lot of light for the transit technique. And it's easy to find a big planet reflecting a lot of light for the direct imaging technique. But as we get better and better developing these techniques, as we get better and better designing the maths, the algorithms, and instrumentation for discovering planets using these techniques, we are finding planets becoming smaller, well, we're finding planets which are smaller and closer in mass to the mass of our own Earth. Because if you have a, a too big a planet, you have something more like a Jupiter or a Saturn, a planet with a huge, big, gaseous atmosphere, something very unlike what we see on our own Earth. We have a, a planet here with a tiny skin of atmosphere, in which we're all enjoying, but that is not how many planets are built. Most planets are built with these huge, big atmospheres, and these big atmospheres are crushingly uh, high in terms of pressure. They have conditions on there which are very unlike what we have on a planet like the Earth. So our planet can't be too big, otherwise we have a gas giant, and that's not very similar to our own Earth. What we want to find are smaller planets which are able to hold on to just enough atmosphere, but not too much so it becomes a gas giant. Just enough atmosphere so that it becomes an atmosphere like we have here on Earth. One last technique I'd like to talk to you about, and that is the technique that this country has been using for the last 25 years to discover planets. At one point, it held the record for the lowest mass planet found by anybody, and it's a technique called gravitational microlensing. This is where the physics gets a little bit more interesting. So far, to a physicist, it's basically car horns and blocking light in various ways. Now we're talking about the way that we can use gravity itself as a telescope, a way of seeing distant things in more clarity and discovering, the way, uh, discovering what is causing that distortion. 
Gravitational microlensing uh, in New Zealand started off uh, back in the mid-90s through a collaboration between uh, my uh, former PhD supervisor, Phil Yock, and some Japanese colleagues. We run the largest telescope in the country down at the University of Canterbury's Mount John Observatory. It's a 1.8-meter telescope, and we, night after night after night, look at the same stars, night after night after night after night after night. Millions of stars, night after night after night after night. Everything in the galaxy is moving around the center of the galaxy. So the stars are all moving around the center, and by chance, you could have one star, our star, the sun, lining up almost exactly with another star and something else in between. So three objects. Us, here on Earth, observing it. A background star, so a star right in the middle of our galaxy, thousands of light years away. And by chance, because everything is moving around the center of our galaxy, we have that background source of light and a foreground object and a telescope on Earth. So I'm gesturing at that light over there as being the background star producing a lot of light. And I need a volunteer. Mahima, well done, thank you. Okay, so I'm on Earth, I'm the observer. Everything is moving around uh, the center of the galaxy, which is over there somewhere. And by chance, me, the observer on Earth, this object, and that light up, 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 almost, almost exactly line up perfectly. Now what happens in that, that's fine. <laughs> what happens in this case is that this thing here has gravity. It can bend light. The light from the background star, which I am looking at night after night after night, suddenly starts to appear to get brighter. Now stars occasionally get brighter from time to time for various reasons. Sometimes they burp out some gas and get brighter. Sometimes they're just going through a midlife crisis and they're just getting fatter, bigger, smaller, that sort of thing. But in this case, when this object, uh, an object, passes between me sitting here on Earth, down at Jacopo, looking at millions of stars, passes between that background thing there, which I'm looking at, and my eye, that light from that background star gets bent around this object here in a way very similar to an optical lens, hence the term lensing. What that means is, as this thing passes between my eye and uh, moves close to that background thing there, I can see the gravitational effect of this thing affecting the light from that background thing there in a way which is kind of like taking a magnifying glass and passing it between your eye and a background light. If you light it up, things get very, very bright, and as you move it away again, it all falls away again. Now, this is a very sensitive technique for finding planets. This, we don't see necessarily. This is just an object. It could be a very, very faint star which we could never see, but we only care about its effect, its gravitational effect on the background light. This is gravitational lensing, the technique which we've been using in New Zealand for a quarter of a century to discover extrasolar planets, and we continue to do so. The next big step is that we're going to be using gravitational lensing in a new NASA mission called WFIRST, which is uh, the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope. It is going up. It's a 2.4-meter space telescope. It's kind of like a successor to Hubble. But part of that telescope's uh, project will be to discover extrasolar planets using the gravitational microlensing technique. So something which I've been keen about for many, many years. I can't claim to have been the person to uh, make that happen. That involves people on much higher pay scales than me. But I'm highly excited about what sort of results are going to come out of that telescope in due course when it flies in the middle of this uh, decade. I'm going to throw it open now to Q&As now, if anybody's got any questions. So just what stuff about the planets can we 
know about them. OK, so the question was, what can we know about the planets from these observations? Size, chemical composition, for instance. OK, excellent. One thing we get from the radial velocity technique is how much gravity this thing is pulling this star backwards and forwards. We get an idea of the mass. We get a good guess. If the mass is too high, then we can run a whole bunch of simulations to say, oh, we take that much mass, you dump it together. Um, you go talk to the, the mathematicians who do the you know, planet formation uh, sciences and give them some milk and cookies or a beer, and they go away and they say, okay, if you've got that much mass going around a star like this, then this is going to be a planet like a Jupiter. So you can get an idea of what it's like based on its mass alone. Similarly, when you do the transit technique, all you get an idea of is the size of this thing. You don't get an idea of its mass. All you know about is just how much light it's blocking out from its host star. So size is kind of related to what kind of planet it's going to be, but you have to also make some more of those same kind of assumptions. So you get an idea. But what gets very exciting is a new technique, which is an extension of the transit technique. All right, so here's a star radiating light. Here is a planet with an atmosphere. When it passes between this thing here producing a lot of light and your eye, so the, you're the observers, there's going to be a dip in light because some of the light is going to be blocked by this thing. But if this thing has an atmosphere, some of that light goes through the atmosphere and carries on to you. Remember what I was saying about how you can determine what an atmosphere is made of from its fingerprint, from its absorption spectrum? Same thing here. When you're looking at the star, you can put the light from the star going through a spectrograph. And you can say, oh, yes, it's made of hydrogen, helium, with a touch of calcium and a side order of silicon. Fabulous. When this thing goes past, it goes, oh, we've lost some of the light. But what we discover is all of a sudden we're seeing now the chemical fingerprints of interesting things like nitrogen, oxygen, water. Knowing that this thing has an atmosphere can be determined by the change in the spectrum that you see when the planet is transiting its star. So this is one of the most exciting things that's happening at the moment. Uh, the most recent, thank you, observations <laughs> include um, uh, observations from the Hubble Space Telescope. It is transmit, uh, transit spectroscopy. Once we have an idea that a planet has an atmosphere, we are very keen to know about what that atmosphere comprises. If it has got water in it, for instance, that's exciting. Nitrogen, exciting. Oxygen, exciting. Ozone, very exciting. This is how we try and narrow down from, yes, we have a planet, but now we want a planet with an atmosphere. OK, we've got a planet with an atmosphere. Now we want a planet with the right atmosphere. This is where we find ourselves now. Sorry, so we've discovered all these planets, but how far away are we from saying we've discovered another Earth? OK, um, how would you like me to answer this? We have discovered planets which have got the same size and mass as the Earth. Notice I haven't said that we've found another Earth. We've found a planet with the same size and mass as the Earth. It says nothing about whether it's got an atmosphere with rain and life like taxi drivers. We, we don't have that information yet, but we're getting close. We, at the start of uh, the 2000s, we had planets which were very much the size of Jupiter and Neptune. Great. And the question was, OK, that's only part of the story. Is our solar system with you know, its four small inner planets and its four large outer planets, is that kind of unique? Or is it... Common. The answer now is it's probably common. Can we discern multiple planets around a single star? Single star? Absolutely. And we have done, so the question was, can we, can we discover multiple planets around a single star? The answer is absolutely, and we have done so. I think the record is something like a six-planetary system. 
and that was through transit. Uh, you're seeing extra bumps and wiggles in, in the data that you see. All of the techniques can do that. What is interesting, what is interesting is that the microlensing technique found a little scale model of our solar system down to uh, the biggest planets, Jupiter and Saturn. So the microlensing technique, one of those techniques, I mentioned before, it found a planetary system which had a Jupiter and a Saturn. The Jupiter and Saturn were orbiting around its host star at the same orbital radii that Jupiter and Saturn do, but just scale down slightly. So the star that they were going around was a smaller in mass, which meant that the orbital radii of those two planets that we discovered were also you know, slightly closer in to the host star. But it made us think. It made us think an awful lot about what is needed to have um, a habitable world like our Earth. There's a few theories out there which says in order to have a habitable world like our Earth, you need to have a Jupiter in your solar system. That's interesting. There's an extension to that theory which says that if you've got a Jupiter in your solar system, you need a Saturn to keep that planet in check. So having one big bruise of a planet going around and pretty much whatever Jupiter does in the solar system, that's, that's what happens, right? And things can get awfully chaotic very quickly. And chaotic things for a small little planet like our Earth is bad news. So having a, a, a minder, if you like, somebody who's chaperoning the big planet in your solar system, like a Saturn is to Jupiter in our solar system, might actually be one of those things that we need to have a world safely stuck in our inner solar system, like our Earth, for life to evolve on. Yeah, how quickly is your technology that you're using to investigate this evolving? Like, like in five years' time, will you be way more advanced than we are now, or like? <laughs> Me personally? Oh, okay, no, um, so well, the, the, the no, question... No, not you personally, I know the answer to that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna, not gonna try. I'm not going to investigate further. I'll just leave it where it is. It could go either way. Uh, so the question is, um, how fast is the technology advancing? Uh, where are we going to be in five years' time? Okay. Um, okay, let's see. Um, okay, the next invention will be telescopes in space, designed and specifically designed, rather, to do the sort of observations we know will be successful in discovering things like uh, atmospheres around planets using the transit technique. So we, have, we throw up, you know, uh, instruments up there which are like, yeah, here's a telescope. It's going to do lots of things but it won't necessarily do the one thing that you want perfectly. So what you do is you then convince people who have got the budget to do it, and that's usually NASA uh, or JPL or the likes of a large government, saying, please give me the money to do this one thing really well. And then you'll see a step change. So this is what W first is going to do, the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope I mentioned earlier on for microlensing. And this is what is getting me personally quite um, agitated because I know that there's about a dozen people in the world who can do the planetary modeling that... I do, and we're already extremely overworked. The next thing you know, we're going to have a Hubble-class space telescope producing, saying, oh, here we go, here's a whole pile of data which is better than you've ever seen before. There's lots of it. Go, find the planets. And it's like, um, this was already kind of difficult. Now I need some more PhD students to, <laughs> to come and learn from me and to, to, to crank through this. So things like... Um, to, that, when I mentioned that the physics of microlensing is more interesting, it's more interesting to a physicist because it's... It's richer. It's got, a, it's got a more intricate description. You can do more with it, if you like. Uh, the analysis is harder than things like the transit technique or the radial velocity technique or simply taking a picture, like uh, uh, direct imaging. 
So that means that you can train a computer to do those sort of stuff a lot easier. Those techniques are easier to be solved by a computer than gravitational microlensing. You still have to have some hands-on intuition and experience of the observer and the analyst to go, okay, that's noise, that's a planet. So this is the, this is the difficulty I find myself in right now. So when are we going to find taxi drivers on another planet? Yeah. Another beer, please. Um, <laughs> that was a serious request. Um, when, I can't give you when, I can give you how. Can I, can I do the, the, the traditional student thing of, of, of recasting the question into one which I can answer? That's <laughs> what all our students do in exams. What Neil, Professor Neil is asking for here is when and how are we going to find life on a world other than our own? Is that a fair statement? We'll leave out the taxi driver thing. We'll just assume that that's a natural evolution. Uh, we know about SETI, so the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That's been going on since, I don't know, the 60s. Basically, as making the assumption that intelligent life would have the equivalent of BFM and radio hierarchy and be blasting that out ever since they managed to figure out how to you know, tune a radio. That's basically the assumption. And the radio waves would then spread out through the universe at the speed of light, and we would eventually be able to pick them up using extremely sensitive radio telescopes. So the idea that you know, that would happen is all predicated on an assumption that aliens like radio and will use it. This is, you know, in my mind, a little bit, you know, it's a great start, right, because we know how radio works and we know that's a good, good place to start looking. You look through the radio spectrum, and you try and find alien hierarchy, and you know, that sounds great. However, when you start asking about how life could possibly evolve or manifest itself, you're kind of throwing open a massive can of worms, and you have to start asking yourself some pretty uncomfortable questions. Like, what is life anyway? How are we going to know what life is when we see it? If we go to a different world or search in a different part of um, the spectrum, if you like, like we do with SETI, we are bringing with ourselves a whole bunch of um, biases and um, uh, presumptions about how that life is going to manifest itself and how it's going to be seen. And we've only just started to realize, do you like the way I've really just avoided your question completely now, and I'm just going off on one. We have to design missions or uh, experiments which allow us to define, well, be very careful about what we're looking for and say, okay, we're going to design an experiment which is going to find this thing and this, where this thing is evidence for a life process. We have spent a fair amount of the last uh, 20 or 30 years discovering on this world itself that life manifests itself in an incredible variety of forms. It's not just you, me, cat, dog, viruses, bacteria, or taxi drivers. We have made some sweeping assumptions earlier on that life would be carbon-based, would require some access to solar energy in some form, could only exist in fairly temperate ranges, so the, between the boiling point and the freezing point of water, for instance, um, etc. would be DNA-based, would have a certain number of chemical processes which would allow the production of energy in cells. By investigating places like deep underneath the sea ice in Antarctica, by investigating environments around uh, sub-ocean uh, hydrothermal vents, by looking at acid pools, by looking at the sort of places that we have here in New Zealand, these sort of geothermal pools, we've discovered that life can emerge and thrive in 
a much wider range of environments than we ever thought possible, using a whole bunch of different techniques for generating energy, for instance, and completely ignoring the assumptions that we decided would be necessary for life. What that has done is it's changed our view immeasurably about how we are going to make the first discoveries of life, getting to the question now. If you choose to take a look at, on your cell phones now, it's not a pub quiz, you can refer to your cell phones. If you take a look at Europa as a world, this is one of the moons of Jupiter, it has a remarkable appearance. It looks like the world's best skiing site. Got some slopes, but generally it's flat and it's covered with um, a fairly smooth surface. So it doesn't look like the moon, it hasn't got massive craters. It, has a surface, we can see it, it's not a world like a Jupiter uh, with a massive atmosphere. What it looks like, it has a smooth outer shell, and what we've discovered is that that smooth outer shell is there because material is being heated from underneath this ice ball surface, melted and then squirted out in geysers or reflowed onto the surface, constantly changing the surface of Europa. And that is water ice. Water is considered to be one of the, if not the most important things for life processes. Again, assumption, but it seems to be holding pretty strong. Water is a great you know, uh, medium on which life processes can take place. So the search for life out there is strongly coupled to the search for water. And on Europa, we've discovered that the surface of Europa is constantly being refrozen because we think, one of the theories is that beneath the frozen outer surface is a massive body of water. It's a water world, just with a frozen crust. So what? You might say, OK, well, it's going to be freezing cold, right? It's going to be completely inimical to life. It's not going to be suitable for life at all. Until you go to, a places, uh, until you go to places like Lake Vostok, which is a uh, subglacial lake. It's about 3.6 kilometers underneath uh, the ice. It is completely devoid of um, sunlight, has no access to um, uh, any external uh, forms of energy other than geothermal energy heating the water. And so a bunch of scientists went out there, drilled down, and took a look to see um, what they could find in that lake. And speculation was rife, of course. It was like, oh, is this going to be a completely sterile saline solution? It's going to be, nah, not going to see anything there. You might see something. Hmm. What they found was 3,500 different ways that life could take hold in that environment separately, independently, able to produce and live and thrive in that environment, which was an environment very dissimilar to what we have on the surface of the Earth. Now consider, we have a world in our solar system which is basically a global Lake Vostok, Europa. Still getting to the question. The question was when. Previously, let's take a think of what would happen if we received a radio signal from, I don't know, alien Hauraki. What are we going to do with that? Well, there's whole movies dedicated to that sort of thing. Uh, would we be able to communicate back? Well, let's say it came from you know, 30 light years away, well, the round trip would be 60 years. To say, hello, hello, <laughs> takes 60 years, it's kind of boring, um, even if they were still alive. We have the opportunity now to investigate a world, Europa, as being a possible uh, cradle of life. And we can get there. We've been there. We've gone past it, we've taken photographs of it, and there are plans now to create the sort of mission that will be able to land on the surface of a world like Europa, drill down through the ice surface, and investigate the possibly liquid subsurface area there and search for life. 
That is something we can do in 10 years. That answers your question. Taxi drivers, sorry, can't comment. <laughs> more questions, if we've got time. My question was more so of, I think you got to it, but when, if we were to look for a planet which could sustain life outside of our solar system, how would we be, well, when would we be able to get there? Would that be beyond any of our lifetimes? Okay, so this is, this is, so the question was, if we found evidence for life outside of our solar system, how long would it take for us to get there? Depends on what sort of new physics you're going to discover. Okay, so the, the challenge here is anything out there, uh, let's say outside of our uh, local neighborhood, uh, is hundreds of light years away. A light year is a measure of distance. Uh, that measure of distance is uh, how far light travels in one year. Light is the fastest, theoretically, that anything could travel, and nothing can travel at the speed of light unless it's light. So unless you will turn yourself into light and beam yourself towards uh, the planet, it's still going to take you hundreds of years to get there, even as a light beam. <laughs> uh, we don't have the physics and the technology allowing us to travel there unless you take a look at some of the harder science fiction where we all get onto a generation ship and just breed ourselves over there, uh, or we freeze ourselves to get over there. So breed or freeze, that's a new phrase. Um, either way, it's going to take an awfully long time to get there. And you've got to hope that your navigational system is good enough to hit, you, hit, hit the right planet when you get there, and that there's still someone to say hello to. So this is why, you know, I am... There are really real, there are proper scientists who are thinking about generation ships and sort of populating yourself outwards and breeding your way throughout the galaxy, but you know, that takes an awful lot more uh, thinking than, let's say, let's just go to Europa and just check out there first. Um, you made the statement that it was important to have a Jupiter. Yes. Um, and you didn't explain why. Okay, the theory. There's a theory, and the theories are yet to be uh, determined. What happens uh, in the formation history of our solar system? When you start off with, um, uh, when you want to build a planetary system, you start off with a big cloud of gas and dust. That cloud of gas and dust condenses down into a big pancake disk. It all starts rotating. Uh, the center of that disk gets hotter and hotter and hotter, thank you, um, and starts to become the protostar. It starts getting hotter and hotter and hotter. It starts to radiate outwards to produce heat and radiation, which heats up the material in that pancake closest to uh, that protosun. Heated material vaporizes, turns into a gas. Some of that uh, material would be water, water ice. You put it close to a hot thing, it melts, turns to a gas, and gets blown away by the solar wind, which is a stream of charged particles blowing away from the protosun. The upshot is that stuff that you make planets from close to your new star doesn't have any water in it. That's a problem, because I made the point earlier on that having water is kind of a really important thing for making beer, amongst other things. Where's it going? Okay, so you make planets out of stuff which doesn't have a lot of water. You need water to have life processes. How do you get water onto your little worlds which you're building close to the sun? One way of doing it is you have a big planet like Jupiter, which when it's going around its, uh, when it's, going around its host star, like Jupiter goes around the sun, it's a big bully. It has a huge gravitational field. It affects the motion of lots of different objects, asteroids, minor planets, bits and pieces left over from that formation history. Some of those bits and pieces will still be comprised of water ice, will still have that ice frozen from its formation history. Jupiter, when it goes around, or the Jupiter, the big thing going around its star, will knock 
gravitationally, some of those objects from their orbit and send them inwards to impact small worlds like the Earth, delivering water to those worlds. That's one of the reasons why a Jupiter might be useful. A Jupiter by itself, like I mentioned, could just wreak havoc, including occasionally throwing out those small worlds themselves. So one theory is that you need to have a set, and they're saying, nah, steady, just stay out here. Um, so since you've started studying this, you've gone from nine planets to 4,000 planets. What are you excited about studying next, or what's coming up? Okay, um, so I'm going to correct your statement. We've gone from nine planets to eight planets to 4,000 planets. <laughs> um, what was the question? Oh, what, what excites me next? Okay, excellent. Okay. Well, what excites me next is, is the prospect of being able to find solar systems more like our own, right? So we've found, like I mentioned, a planetary system that's like kind of ours down to Jupiter and Saturn. Now I want to find planets, a whole family of planets, which look very much like our own solar system. And I want to find the sort of planets which have atmospheres. Finding atmosphere is the next key thing to find. So that's one aspect. Another aspect is being able to contemplate what we can do with in our own solar system. So we, you know, when we started off this whole business of looking out there for life or worlds in which life could exist, like I mentioned, over the, the 10 or so years, to, uh, most recent years, we've gone, or oh, we could be here. <laughs> Why not here in our own solar system? And this is work which is very much across the university or any other university. You're talking about uh, studies of biology, chemistry, physics, geophysics, um, mathematics, computer science, artificial intelligence? Yes, indeed. All these things sort of combine together in this new-ish um, study, which, when it first showed up, was considered to be a bit, you know, that's a bit of a joke, called astrobiology. The concept of life, life processes, what is required for life elsewhere, what is life anyway? Astrobiology. This is now a real serious study which is drawing in the skill sets from a wide range of people. And just as a plug for the University of Auckland again, uh, uh, we have a Centre for Fundamental Inquiry which looks into this, Te Awa Marama is the name. And that is a centre where we bring together people from across the university to say, okay, well, how would you tackle this problem? It isn't just the, um, it isn't just the, the, the right, if you like, or the field of a chemist or a biologist or a physicist or a mathematician to define what life is or how we're going to discover it, or an engineer to, de to design the mission that will do it. It requires skill sets from a whole bunch of people to be able to bring their views to the subject. And together, we can come up with missions that will be, that will be successful. So that, that is something which excites me more these days, is bringing people together from different backgrounds, with different skill sets, different ways of looking at the same problem, and going, OK, well, how would we do this, and how would we ensure it's successful? I, I thought about two questions, but I'll just give you the personal one. Um, having gone as deeply down the rabbit hole as you have done, has that completely and irreversibly subverted your ability to look up into the sky and go, oh, gee, doesn't that just look neat? What's fun is if I... If I OK, the question is, on a personal um, scale, can I still appreciate the natural beauty of the night sky? The answer is yes. And if I drink too much of this, I can see twice as many stars, which is cool. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, one of the... Um, uh, one of the greatest things or greatest joys I have is having the time to go and observe down at Mount John Observatory, which is in the Mackenzie Dark Sky Reserve. It's one of the few places on Earth where the sky is darkest. And if you've had not, not had the chance to go and enjoy that, um, I suggest you go and do so because the night sky down there is actually extraordinary. It's very easy to get quite atmospheric and just lie on your back and stare at the sky and think, what's it all for? I'm going to be dead in 20 years' time. What's the point? 
Um, but that's kind of the nature of the job, unfortunately. Um, when you sort of contemplate the, the vast um, scales of time and space, it sort of humbles you, for sure. But it also in, um, empowers you when you think that, okay, look how far we've come in being able to understand our place in the universe, and that's what gets me out of bed each day. It's like I can push ourselves a little bit further forward down that path. So absolutely, I can still enjoy the night sky. I am an astrophotographer. I'm not a very good one. Um, but I enjoy taking pictures of the night sky and knowing that you know, this is something which I can observe, uh, I can appreciate, and I can capture, and, and I can try and get as many people uh, interested in it uh, themselves. I was just curious to know what your thoughts are on um, Elon Musk's Mars mission. Uh, my thoughts on Elon Musk and or his Mars mission. Um, next question. <laughs> uh, I'm not being facetious. I think, I mean, every generation has an Elon Musk. Uh, they have their place in society. Um, yeah, next question. <laughs> a couple of months ago, I was listening to a documentary that talked about what would happen if we found a planet that had the correct uh, profile, like size and mass that you talked about earlier, and it was quite a distance away from Earth, which it's actually quite likely to be. How would we make contact and how would we find out whether life, in fact, did exist there? And in that documentary, it talked about putting tiny little micro uh, satellites or something like that mm -hmm. with little, uh, like, uh, shields or solar shields or sails yes. or something like that and shooting lasers at them to propel them along. And I found that was a fascinating way because it can get up to a significant speed of light and in about 20 years' time, uh, they might actually reach that destination and be able to send back messages. I felt like I wanted to know more about it and if you know more about it, I'd love to hear it. Yes, I do. Okay, so uh, there is a uh, technological solution to the going faster than the speed of light, sort of. We can approach a substantial fraction of the speed of light and get to our places within our human lifetime. One possibility is using these things called chipsets, which are these very, very small satellites. Um, the idea being is that instead of putting all your eggs in one basket and making a multi-billion dollar satellite and going, or spacecraft and going that away, and then realizing halfway you go that away that somebody didn't plug the thing in properly or it's, you know, the solar cells broke or it's, you know, somebody did the feet to meters conversion wrong or not at all, and your multi-billion dollar satellite is now dead, you instead make thousands of these small little chip sites, uh, chipsets, and they are literally about the size of, of this. Very, very small indeed. But with miniaturization of electronics, we're able to have small solar cells which generate electricity to run a small little computer to, say, for instance, take a little fragment of light from the planet as it goes screaming past at point two the speed of light, which is kind of fast, and say, what can I see in the atmosphere of that planet as I go screaming past? How do you get that information back is another matter from this tiny, tiny little thing. But you know, there are solutions. The idea being is if you've got a 1,000 of these things, let's say you lose 90% of them. You only need one of them to work. You only need one of them to work and send back that information. I have built one of these. I've built these things. So a couple of years ago, we had a, uh, a chipset hackathon at the University of Auckland, name drop, um, where we had the experts in this field come over to us from Stanford we got a whole bunch of students together in a room, and they had, for 48 hours, uh, they had to come up with a mission design for these little chipsets. They were told you can measure radioactivity, magnetic fields, you can have a small spectroscope, you can have a whole bunch of little sensors that will fit in a chipset. 
here are your three uh, solar cells, go away and design a mission, or, and by the way, you've got to talk back to Earth as well with this tiny, tiny little thing across hundreds of light years. This was one of the most exciting things uh, I've seen any group of students do. They were working themselves throughout their 48 hours almost non-stop, and some of the ideas they came up with were incredible. So that is the, 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 uh, the system that you're talking about here. Yes, I'm fully aware of it. I think it's a great idea. There are some practical issues that we need to deal with, not least of which building a big enough laser. So the idea with the laser is that you shoot the laser at the satellites and they don't instantly vaporize, which is what you might think. Parts of the, 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 uh, the, the laser will strike the satellites and they'll get pushed away. And if you can keep on pushing the satellites, these tiny, tiny little satellites, these spacecraft, with the same laser for a period of time, they'll accelerate to the solar speeds that we require without destroying them completely. There is a problem that you need something like three nuclear power stations to produce the laser powerful enough to do this. But, you know, we'll leave that aside. That's, you know, engineering. I don't do engineering. <laughs> I think that's the last question. Am I right? Thank you very much, everybody.